City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Limits. Radio uh, City Limits on air. It's um, the third Wednesday of the month, therefore it's our housing day, and we're going to have Howard Morosi. Um, if he's listening, and I'm hopefully listening a bit sooner, I, I dashed out to catch a bus this morning in this weather and uh, got to the bus stop and realised I'd left his number at home. So, Howard, we're hoping you will ring in at the appropriate moment, but anyway, uh, yeah, well, I'll repeat that later, and presuming I'm making an assumption that he's actually listening. Um, I'm Kevin Healy. We've also got Jane McGrath coming in from the Housing for the Aged Action Group this morning, so we'll be talking lots of stuff about housing going on, including I want to talk to them about moves in Germany to freeze rents for low-income people, which is an interesting move and one that might be able to be followed here, but I doubt it would be. Um, so we'll talk about those issues and Karina's over there, in fact she's settled down again now because she was dancing around there before with well, the intro music and uh, she's that got back in her seat. That doesn't sound like me at all, Kevin. <laughs> back <laughs> in the seat. everybody, just doing a, a nice old panelling and waiting for my cup of tea actually. Karina, nice too, lovely, yes. We, um, we uh, have missed you the last week, or so, well only the last couple of weeks because um, you've got some work problems I know going on but you've managed to overcome those this morning and get here which is oh, great somewhat. to see. Uh, I am doing, thank you for that cup of tea, I am um, doing work for the Dole for Centrelink and volunteering apparently isn't good enough an excuse to get out of my 25 hours per week so... Oh. I think it's about one dollar an hour. I don't know. Yeah, I haven't actually right. done the maths on it. Yeah, I wouldn't. It certainly wouldn't be exploitation anyway. That's for sure. But oh no. No, no, no. I mean, you can. And certainly it. a lot more valuable <laughs> than you know some old oh. some old program like this. Can you whoop it up on a dollar an hour? <laughs> for God's sake, you go mad. Wow, oh, what a what a life you live. Um, <laughs> okay, and um, just a couple of things before we're going to go. We'll, we'll rave on for a while anyway. I'm going to have a sip of tea first, though, Karina, and so are you. Simultaneously, we, neither of us can speak. Mm. That was exciting radio. But anyway, the Americans are certainly um, a great country that's bent on uh, world peace, of course, and for that they have have troops stationed in almost every country of the world to keep the peace around the world, which is really big of them. But the the World Trade Organization, now it's not the greatest body in the world as far as I'm concerned, but it does keep some sort of order in the world capitalist system. But Trump's trying to stop it up. He's trying to prevent it um, doing its doing the miserable job it does anyway, because he wants it to be changed to favour America a lot more than it does. And um, among the things he's done that people mightn't be aware, there's an appellate body there, which hears disputes between countries. But it simply can't function because I don't know why he's got the right of veto, but he has vetoed every appointment to it for the last several, you know, last year or two. So there's now no one left to hear the thing. So the body doesn't exist anymore because he vetoes every appointment to stop it working, which is part of, uh, you know, part of the, the Trump philosophy, of course, if you can call anything he does philosophy, I suppose. Um, the other one is this week, the, the, the war sounds that, 
sounds that are meant to be about peace and keeping peace in the world, but which to me sound more and more like war language over Yahweh and China. Um, and um, the, the and of course Australia just simply follows on <coughs> to whatever whatever America wants to do. We always say yes, don't we? So that so that's that's a given. And America is attacking Boris Johnson. They're upset because he's allowing Yahweh to have to to be part of the British network. And they claim, of course, this is going to uh, allow them to spy and intelligence, etc. And in fact, um, a report last week said Trump was reportedly apoplectic after Johnson's announcement. And um, and Mark Esper, the U.S. Defence Secretary or Offence Secretary, warned key European alliances would be at risk if countries bought Yahweh technology. And American companies are trying to buy into some other companies so they can challenge Yahweh. And because uh, at the, the bottom of it all, is, I guess the American companies want to run all this themselves and not have another company from China involved. Mm. But Australia last week was supposed to go to Britain to talk some security matters with the British government. But after Johnson's Yahweh and the American screaming, instead the members of the Intelligence Security Committee went to Washington, went to Britain, went to the US and, and abandoned the trip to Britain as protest over Morris, John, Morris Johnson did. So again, we're doing the bidding of the United States. Um, and um, they also, the UK's upset anyway, they're complaining that Yahweh can, can uh, spy on them as they claim. And yet... Um, Britain's upset because two members, Andrew Hasty, who's a former trained killer and very much he loves a bit of trained killing, Western Australian, very conservative MP, and David Fawcett, another very conservative MP, according to Britain, leaked information given them by the uh, British government as part of um, security arrangements. And so Britain's upset as well. So it's, it's running in all directions at the moment. But then last week in a... Um, in, in a what what was called a um, an annual gathering of Western diplomats and business leaders, which was held um, last week in Europe, um, we saw Mike Pompeo, the American Secretary of State, accuse China and Russia of creating empires. Now, I would have thought America accusing anyone of creating an empire would qualify spectacularly for the pot calling the kettle award. It would have to, <laughs> wouldn't it? I mean, you know, oh, for God's sake. But they say they can, they can stop them creating empires because they can use the troops they have in almost every country around the world. So that, that solves the problem. Yes, it's only mm. okay when they do it, isn't it? Oh, well, it, that's perfect. That's for, that's for peace, not for war. That's right. Mm. But they're using very, very nasty war language. Um, in fact, at the conference, Pompeo said, the West is winning something that would be obvious to Trump administration critics if they were only willing to accept reality, whatever reality is. Um, but the West is winning, sounds to me. He doesn't say what they're winning, but one assumes there's a war on, but um, I didn't remember. But then America often has wars they don't declare, so there might be a war on. <laughs> they just haven't bothered to declare. Um, and the aforementioned Mark Esper, the Secretary of Defence, he said the presence of Yahweh in commercial networks risks undermining the NATO alliance, dismissing China's argument that it has no capability to use its equipment to intercept messages or shut down networks in times of conflict. And he said that countries that um, use Yahweh will be retaliated against by the United States. So it's, um, 
It's all going very well, isn't it? I can see that. Yes. And indeed, the commander of the US Armed Forces in the Indo-Pacific, that's our area down here, has warned of a growing gap in offensive capability between China and its neighbours, including Australia. Admiral Philip Davidson said the symmetry that is growing in the region with malign actors like North Korea and China, too, aren't they evil countries, Karina, evil countries, was a source of instability and that investment in defensive technologies was insufficient. We need to spend more on the merchants of death. And he goes on, but then he talks about the fact that America sees this as, as, as part of its, its priority theatre, um, the, the Indo-Pacific. So China isn't allowed to do anything around China's own borders, but America can have the whole Indo-Pacific as its theatre of um, of peace, not of war, I wouldn't say war, mm. but theatre of peace. It's yes. the same double standard as the whole Huawei story as well. It's like, God forbid anybody else, you know, ooh, intelligence and spying, and it's, it's you know, it's not like the US has ever done anything like that, am I right? No, that, oh, never. And in fact, it was intelligence, you, um, which seems to be one of the great misnomers of all time, mm-hmm. intelligence, which led, of course, to America proving that... Uh, Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. Remember, um, Colin Powell went to the UN and, just, and gave them the proof. Uh, weapons of mass destruction. They had nuclear arsenals. They were going to attack every country in the world. Uh, all of which proved to be just a touch wrong, like, like 100%. Um, <laughs> and, um, anyway, but that's, well, I think when they use intelligence, you have to just question theirs, of course, in these situations. Um, and again, U.S. Attorney General William Barr said the United States and its allies should consider the highly unusual step of taking a controlling stake in Finland's Nokia and Sweden's Ericsson to counter China-based Yahweh's dominance in next-generation 5G wireless technology, etc., etc. So the real secret is they want to get their hands on it, as I see it. That's it. It's for our protection. Um, well... Um, get clearly, in, get into Ericsson, get a bit of Nokia, and it's it's a counter. It's not. No. That's they. We didn't start it. I'm pretty sure is that hmm. that statement. Oh no, no. I think I think you have to say the Chinese and Russians and North Korea started all this. That's I mean, it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for God's sake. Yes, yes, yes. Um, now moving on, um, the. We've also this week, and it was a very good decision, although it was only only 4-3, or the three, though, weren't necessarily saying that Aboriginals are, uh, or Indigenous people of this country are aliens, but the High Court last week ruled that uh, that indeed Indigenous people of this country are not aliens in their own country, which that, that case, we talked about it when Dutton first tried to deport the two um, individuals, both one born in New Guinea, one born in New Zealand, of an Aboriginal parent coming to Australia as young children living here all their lives uh, and Dutton, of course, attempting to deport Indigenous people. I mean, it's just outrageous and extraordinary, isn't it? But subsequent to that, Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton is considering legislation to restrict the damage of a controversial High Court decision which ruled he cannot deport Indigenous Australians who were born overseas. Um, and the ruling it just explains the ruling. Um, they can't be considered aliens, even if they do not hold Australian citizenship. The government believes this has created another class of people. We'll wait for the legal advice as to what our options are to legislate where we can and to try and restrict the damage, Mr Dutton said. So they're going to go into Parliament and attempt to carry a rule that says that Indigenous people can be considered aliens in their own country. 
Um, but also that kind of language, like restrict the damage. Mm. The damage. What, what is that? The damage is that two people who should be deported because they committed some sort of crime, they, only, they didn't. Existence. Yeah. Um, should, they're obviously threats to us. Now that they're allowed to stay here, we're all under threat, apparently. But yeah, I, I, I feel pretty nervous on the tram this morning coming in, I must admit. I thought, gee, if one of those people's on this tram, I mean, I'm in trouble. That's what I thought. I mean, gee, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. But um, it's just extraordinary. And um, anyway, that's the old Pete. He's done it again. Mm. And his comment, though, that this... Um, that this creates another class of people, yeah. uh, class of people. Uh, Andrew Bolt, I hate to talk about him, but he came up and his, his headline was, ruling looks like apartheid. So he says that declaring mm. that Aborigines are not aliens is apartheid and gives them a separate race class in this country over the rest of the population and gives them great power. Uh, I'm not going to read on. I didn't bother to read on, but I mean, it's just—it's just a load of unbelievable nonsense. Um, it is, yeah, isn't it? Even yeah. the finest of jasmine teas in the morning can't get that no, taste out of my it mouth. Can't it? Can't. It's disgusting. And in fact, on the same theme, um, ri- arising out of um, the the up, the update report last week on um, on the state of Aboriginal people. Uh, Pauline Hanson said drunk and drug-addicted Aboriginal parents were failing their children. In a contradiction to the grieving shared in Parliament over failing Indigenous targets, Senator Hanson shouted down the guilt imposed on whites. So um, apparently it's the whites who are suffering. Well, that's what, um, that's what Bolt says too, actually. Um, the, she said... Uh, my thoughts are echoed by many Aboriginals who take the time to meet with me. Well, that would be about none, I would have thought. Um, <laughs> I, I can't imagine one maybe, Aboriginal. Maybe meat is a bit of a um, euphemism. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, I would have thought. Uh, anyway, they obviously queue up to talk to her. Mm. When you spend billions of dollars a year on any group of people, you expect outcomes. And on she went and was the most racist rant you could ever think of. Um, Same old story with yeah, her, though, isn't it? It is, it is. And someone, in fact, made that point. Um, even um, she said uh, she was lamp. She was the Greens came out and, and said the speech reflected racism that had come to be expected from one nation. And a Labor senator accused Hanson of dedicating her public life to lowering the tone of every debate. <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, that puts her in her place. Something. <laughs> but in her place, she managed to vote the the wrong way. She actually agreed. I think she actually sponsored the motion last week to um, to censor Matthias Corman in the Senate if he didn't release the report uh, by Phil Gachins, the head of the Prime Minister's Department, that report into Mackenzie and the sports rort, mm. uh, which he in which he said she didn't break any laws other than she didn't didn't give, uh, didn't um, mention her membership of a particular shooting club and for that reason she had to resign but the rest of it was okay contradicting of course the Auditor General's report uh, but the motion was to was that um, Corman be forced to release the full Gachin's report to the Senate and it lost by one vote which was Pauline Hanson's vote because having sponsored it she changed her mind in running and then voted against it. Uh, so she's obviously a pretty solid 
citizen, isn't she? Right, uh, Yeah, that's right. So there you are. But she was convinced by a couple of the Centre Alliance people who were the they're the the ex Xenophon mob who got in few seats in Parliament. Uh, so they broke. She was convinced to withdraw her previous support for the plan by Centre Alliance members Sterling Griff and Rebecca Sharkey. And they said, this motion was designed to humiliate one person and I would never support actions to do that. Uh, so, well, then that's one person. Why can you humiliate Matthias Corman, for God's sake? <laughs> anyway, um, that's it. Um, on, on matters of, to do with uh, energy, etc., um, last week the Financial Review came out with yet another headline saying, well, this is actually not, this was a, an editorial, and the headline on the editorial, no need to read on, is real market signals are still a must on climate. So they're still saying that the the climate question can be solved by allowing the market to sort it out, uh, which I think probably... The is market. A, the market, yeah. After all, it's done for us. It's exactly, exactly. Karina, you could spot on. You, you, well, you obviously are a great appreciator of the market as you put your tea over. Actually, um, <laughs> Karina made a few hints this morning at the kitchen. She said, oh, is it green tea today? I said, well, it's jasmine. So that was a bit of a hint that she really wanted a cup of tea. Then she opened the show by saying, I'm waiting for my cup of tea. And she just then put her cup over and uh, <coughs> demanded a second. You see, it's going well here today. Um, anyway, <coughs> the National Party has come out, and poor old Scott's caught in the middle, of course, because the government is saying, well, we may look at reducing our carbon to emission, carbon emissions to zero by 2050. Everyone says 2050 because it gives you plenty of time. It's 30 years you know, that time, for goodness sake, you can do other things and change your mind. No and promises, though. <coughs> we may No, <laughs> no. 2049, you might start doing something about it. Yeah. Um, but even that isn't good enough because McCormick, the head of the National Party, declared the proposed target unworkable for the Australian economy, while former Resources Minister Matt Canavan warned he was prepared to cross the floor should the Coalition consider adopting the fantastic target, he said, fantastic target. And in fact, he said, how, how as a country can we commit to net zero emissions in 30 years' time when we receive our last diesel submarine in 35 years' time? And I'm not sure what the connection there is, but anyway, that's, uh, that Matt's mind works this way. <clears throat> it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. I haven't looked at the modelling or the cost and benefits of net zero emissions closely because it just seems so fantastical to me. It seems like the kind of things governments say because they're not doing much today but they'd like to try and hoodwink people that they might do something in 30 years' time. Well, that's one thing I do agree with him on, actually. Uh, that's about what they're, they're trying to do, I suggest. Um, but again, these people are just um, totally... Unrealistic and well, out of it. Well, it's also the only reason it's unworkable, quote unquote, for the Australian economy is is what we were discussing two two shows ago was like where where are where are all the fundings coming from for well, for the various political parties we have? Well, yes, of and course in, it's unworkable and because in, indeed it's and all big mining. Yep, that's right, that's right, and and of course. Um, the, um, you're right, I mean, it's that and also the fact that they argue that somehow the economy will suffer if we do, but of course if we don't, we've seen the cost of it just this summer. Mm. I mean, it's, it's taken away the government's so-called surplus, which, you know, I don't, I don't think they should have a surplus anyway, because <laughs> taxes are raised to be spent on services, not to be 
made into a surplus you don't spend. But, but, but anyway, that aside, um, I think this summer we saw what the long-term costs of not doing anything are going to be, and they're going to far exceed the, uh, the costs, and particularly if mm. they do bring in a pop, proper transition plan for workers who do are affected by Absolutely. jobs going, etc. And that's what's needed, a, a transition plan for those workers. But the interesting thing is that um, given the bushfire season, just this week another survey showed that, um, and I'm not sure who did this survey, but it was reported in the Financial Review, and it, uh, oh, it's the ANU's Centre for Social Research and Methods, in fact, did it. Um, and it, it showed that questions, federal government's handling of the bushfire crisis, 59.4% said bad or very bad. Scott Morrison's handling of the bushfire crisis, 64.5% said bad or very bad. Uh, now, confidence in the federal government before the fires, 38.2%. January 20, 27.3%. So hmm. a, an 11% drop in their popularity in the course of the, or confidence in them in the course of the fires. But also, global warming, very serious. 62% of capital city dwellers, 52% of non-capital city dwellers, these are the ones the National Party say don't give a stuff about it, say it's very serious. Global warming, a threat, 74.9% or 75%, let's say, three-quarters of the people, and 66% or 65.5% of non-capital city dwellers. And... Supporting new coal mines, only 35.6% of capital city and 40.1%. So even in the areas where they say that people want coal mines, mm. uh, 40% of people say they don't want coal mines. They, sorry, they support them. So, um, so that means that 60% don't want them. And in fact, um, 65% of uh, city dwellers say no new coal mines as well. So that's, that's contrary to all the things we're told about from the government, of course. So there we are. Look, we'll have a little break and come back and have another rave in a minute or two and we'll actually go over to um, Howard Morosi very shortly, I suggest. Look, Howard, uh, in fact, we'll go to... I've got the wrong glasses on to tell the time. That's, does that say 23 past? It, it does. does. It does. <laughs> right. <laughs> My eyesight isn't failing that badly. Um, Howard, look, I hope you can ring in 94198377. I forgot, sorry, I did, did leave your number at home as I rushed for the bus this morning <laughs> in the rain, but, uh, uh, please forgive me and, uh, and give us a call. 94198377 and, uh, we'll talk to you in a moment. The Taranta Festival is back for five days of music, dance, visual arts and food, celebrating Southern Italian and Mediterranean culture. Featuring, direct from Italy, the voice of Enza Pagliara, Vittario Mucci, Tarantula Garganica and the pick of local acts including Alara, Delirium, Santa Taranta, Opabato, Arte Canela, Cavisha Mazzella, plus the launch of the Melbourne Taranta Orchestra and more. Melbourne Taranta Festival from the 11th to the 15th of March. Full program and tickets available online via tribebooking.com and tarantafestival.com.au. Abalati. The Taranta Festival is a 3CR supporter.
Shane just came into the studio. Um, that was Catfish by Terry Harmonica Bean, and it's all happening all at the same time at the moment. Um, I do believe we've got Howard Morosi on the line. We do Can indeed, and us? Shane McGrath's in the studio as well, so we're all here. I am. Shane's from the House with H Action Group, Howard's from Friends of Public Housing and other groups. Um, Howard, we'll kick off with you. Thanks for calling in, by the way, because I, I, I got to the bus stop and thought, oh God, I forgot his number. Um, but um, uh, a report, you, you usually give us an update on what's been happening in the public housing area, so update. Yep, so um, lucky I listened to your radio show, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Well, I, I was hoping you would, because, yeah, never mind, go on, yeah, good point. <laughs> so um, we've got uh, our normal Defend and Extend public housing rally today, uh, steps of Parliament House, uh, 5.30 till 6.30. Hopefully the weather will be a bit finer by this afternoon, which is quite possible. And next Wednesday, the 26th of February, will be a different time, uh, noon till 1 o'clock. Again, the steps of Parliament House, and uh, I think you should be able to attend that one, Kevin. Next Tuesday. Next Wednesday. Next Wednesday. Wednesday the 26th. Oh, right, yes. Yes. Yeah, hope to see you there, Kevin. <laughs> Thanks, Howard. You're getting your own back, aren't you? <laughs> oh, no, generally, because I, I have seen you at one. I've been to two. I've spoken at two of them. Yeah, oh, okay. Two. You just have to invite him to speak and he'll come to all of them. <laughs> and, uh, He's getting his own back up. now. Another protest coming up soon. There'll be a protest against the um, <coughs> Walker Street Northcote uh, public housing demolition. Um, the government has given the notice to the last couple of tenants that are holding out that they're going to evict them on the 21st of March and there's planned to be a protest on the 14th of March, the Saturday at 10am. Uh, we haven't determined the location yet so uh, you'll have to keep your eye out on um, the Facebook page for uh, Darabin Community Friends of Public Housing and the other uh, public housing groups for that one. So what's the current status of that estate? What's happening? Um, there's only a couple of tenants left there that haven't taken the government's offer to move to different public housing estates. Um, so once they get those tenants out, they'll start demolishing. <clears throat> mm. Are they going to virtually force them out then? Yeah, they'll evict them. Yeah. So um, the other thing is we've still got the... Uh, Homelessness inquiry uh, taking submissions. They've extended that deadline until the 16th of June. Um, all you need to say is that public housing is needed to solve the homelessness issue, and a lot of people already have, I've noticed. Uh, they want to hear from people apart from the homelessness services. Um, and you can just Google uh, uh, Victorian homelessness inquiry, and that should come up, uh, and there'll be a um, something you can fill out on there uh, to make a submission. You can also ask to be heard by the uh, inquiry. Um, so that's... Also, North Melbourne Public Housing Estate is about to be demolished as well. Uh, that was put on hold, so the 
they've, they've got fencing up around the Abbotsford Street estate in North Melbourne. Um, <clears throat> so they've had fencing up, but they haven't done any demolition because I think there's asbestos there. Um, so the work's about to restart. Um, they're about six months behind schedule, um, and they haven't started removing the asbestos yet. Uh, and they're on to their third project manager. So we're here. Without um, any work starting, that's not a bad idea. Or is yeah. Not my... Well, they, 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 got, <laughs> they got the tenants out about a year ago, um, and it's just been sitting there uh, for the last year, roughly, I think. Um, the people who have moved from these estates, where have they generally been located? Uh, it's, been, it's been an assortment. Some of them have actually been located nearby. Um, there is a, a high-rise in... Um, I think it's Melrose Street, North Melbourne, where some of them have gone. Uh, I know a couple of others that went to um, uh, West Heidelberg. There's, there was a new public housing uh, apartment block built just opposite the old West Heidelberg public housing. It's a small one, and some have gone there, and some have been moved out quite a long way away as well. So it's been quite random, really, just really depending on how much the uh, tenant was going to um, insist on... Uh, on holding out for something suitable. Um, we saw that with um, Northcote as well. One of our activists, uh, was the, the department tried to force her to accept uh, what they were offering and she's in her mid-70s and wants to be close to her current you know, medical practitioners and her other networks. Um, so she held out till just recently and managed to get something in Northcote. So as I say, it just has depended on... Um, you know, the government wanted to get people out to um, whatever was available as soon as they could, and some people did that, and, yeah. and the ones that held out got better. And those moved, those moved far away, of course, and then also removed from their normal networks, etc., and, and lose yeah. contacts. And like, that includes, um, obviously, you know, some families with school children whose schooling was interrupted because they um, just couldn't get to their old school and had to relocate to new schools. So it's been incredibly disruptive, and as we've been saying, um, it hasn't. It's been unnecessary for the government to do this because a, a lot of these states have been in good enough condition. Some have required demolition, some just a little bit of renovation. Um, but uh, the excuse that you know uh, everything needed to be demolished was just not true, and um, the the uh, the need for housing should be satisfied um, by building more public housing on uh, the land which is, the government is now selling off en masse, mm. big space of government yep. land are being sold off. Exactly. Shane McGrath, you're a housing with action groups at the end of all this in the sense that you're trying to find accommodation for people who are in pretty desperate straits, but there's less and less presumably because these are being occupied by people moved from estates they're closing. Yeah, I mean, that was definitely a problem for quite a few months last year, that the normal kind of priority system for public housing was all disrupted, especially in you know certain areas where public tenants that were moving out of, you know, perfectly good housing, uh, to, you know, had to be moved into other places and were being prioritised over people who were, you know, homeless, escaping family violence, whatever the situation was. I think that's that that particular problem has kind of calmed down now that they have moved most of the people out of those estates. Um, but obviously... The, the bigger problem that there's not enough public housing uh, is on go. Yeah, exactly. Okay, Howard, any more reports? Yeah, yeah we've got uh, a little bit more about 
um, housing associations and uh, what's happened now is that <coughs> Port Phillip Council has put out its housing, <coughs> housing strategy called In Our Backyards and they're foreshadowing um, actually privatising public housing within Port Phillip uh, for the benefit of the housing associations or community housing as they're known. So they said they're going to work with the Victorian government to uh, identify opportunities for new delivery models, like you know the normal you know academic speak, mm. um, in existing public housing estates through the sale of underutilised properties. Sounds familiar? With proceeds directed to the development of high yielding properties elsewhere in the uh, city of Port Phillip. Um, and establishing new social housing with transfers to registered housing associations and housing providers. So anyone that lives in Port Phillip should know that their local council is actually favouring the privatisation of public housing. That's my, is that Martin Foley's electorate? Uh, yeah, I think uh, he's um, Albert, Albert Park. Park yeah, I think yeah. uh, can't remember who that is. Right. Could be, yeah. actually could be. I'm not have to look that up. Probably flows uh, over a couple of them, I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we've also got how much public housing, by the way, is underutilised? Yeah, I wondered about that as well. Well, that, that's, that's um, you know, academic poly speak for seizing current um, public housing estates and um, knocking, knocking them down and then overbuilding, uh, building too many. And, uh, but it's, it's for the purpose of seizing the land and privatising it directly by selling selling roughly three quarters, half to three quarters for private housing and the rest will just go in to be um, owned or managed by the uh, housing associations. And Port Phillip, Port Phillip, of course, promotes itself as a pretty progressive council and on some issues it is, but this sounds to be quite regressive. Yeah, unfortunately, um, 3CR and uh, Housing for the Age Action Group and you know a few assorted motley crew are the only um, people holding out against the onslaught by the academics and the polys for the last 30 years uh, for privatisation. Um, and they've developed a whole, you know, speakers, I'm, I'm saying it, their own uh, poly speak and academic speak, um, favouring that and disguising it, calling it social housing and, and always shifting the dialogue to talk about social housing instead of focusing on public housing. Um, and also very reluctant to talk about the fact that these housing associations have benefited by the privatisation of public housing. So they're all lumped in together under the umbrella term social housing, and they'll call for more social housing, but they won't call for the the, uh, the, uh, the stopping of the privatisation um, by giving it away to the housing associations. Yeah, I think one of the biggest accomplishments for public housing activists over the last few years has been, like, increasing people's understanding of that distinction. You know, it used to be that most of my friends, even people who are quite politically engaged, like, well, so community housing sounds good. It's all, you know, it's all, all good, isn't it? Social housing sounds great. Now people are much more aware of the difference and it, it trickles down into things like the inquiries and stuff that we're seeing. Yeah, yeah, thanks. <laughs> Being part of it, I'd say. Yeah, that. yeah, absolutely. When, when I first got involved, I didn't know the distinction or the problem either was people uh, like Fiona Ross and Jeremy Dixon that mm -hmm. educated me. It didn't take very long to educate me. You know, you know, they, they had my conversation and <laughs> I knew what they were talking about. Mm -hmm. um, so if you want to understand it, it's quite easy to understand. If you don't want to understand it, you'll just ignore it. Mm. So we've got Labor for Housing having their second meeting. And as I said uh, last year, that there's a problem with them in that the sort of things I was talking about before, uh, in other words, the um, 
blurred language and the failure to criticise the housing associations as being a source of the problem has been transmitted into their mission statement. Um, but it looks like they're becoming very serious. They're going to set up subcommittees. Uh, they're going to focus on the state conference in this year. Uh, they're going to look at local council elections. They're going to visit branches. They're going to engage with state caucus and with the sector. So um, they're serious, but unfortunately it looks to me like they're um, just going to cover up for the government. So if anyone knows any ALP members, uh, please contact them and try and get them to um, have some input into that. The meetings actually <clears throat> do accept people who aren't members of the Labor Party. So if you want to go along, um, I might try and go along myself if they'll let me through the door. Um, but you've got to just let them know by email. Um, and, uh, yeah, you'll see the contact on their Facebook page, Labor for Housing. Mm. They mightn't let you in the door the second time, Howard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just a possibility. Um, all right, um, Shane, did you have anything to report you wanted to say today specifically? Oh, well, just following on from something I mentioned, um, as well as the Victorian inquiry into homelessness, the federal government's just announced an inquiry into homelessness. Um, homeless people everywhere jubilant yeah. because, of course, there's nothing, Dance, nothing in the, homeless dancing people need in their gutters. Dancing in their gutters, Shane. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. So, I mean, again, we will be encouraging our, our members uh, and supporters to, to make submissions to the inquiry. Um, they can do online. We'll be making submissions ourselves, but... You know, it would be nice for the government just to actually build some housing and stop holding inquiries oh. about how to get out of it or whatever they're doing. Yeah. What 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 prompted this latest inquiry? Uh, I don't really have an answer to that. I mean, it's it, like it's unavoidable. Other than delaying doing anything about it, I suppose. I mean, it's increasingly unavoidable that there is a, a homelessness crisis in this country, a housing crisis. Um, the government has to be, I guess, seen to be doing something. I mean, I think the other thing that prompts, like, so many inquiries, this is my theory about it at least, it's not just that they want to avoid doing something. It's that they're so ideologically persuaded by the value of the market that they're convinced there's a market solution. And if you have enough inquiries, somebody's going to tell you what the market solution is. And then they can just give that money to the private sector and the problem will be solved. Um, now, of course, uh, that's not going to happen. It, it's not going to happen both for, you know, for all the obvious reasons and because it's, you know, it's been 10, 20 years of them trying to figure out this market solution to absolutely no avail. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's my personal theory about why we see so many And, of course, at the moment, the market, all the headlines this year have been that house prices are going through the roof again, so mm -hmm. to speak. Um, so the market's looking terrific. It's wonderful. Exactly. But they're also talking about the fact that the first home buyer scheme the government's brought in is, is also uh, helping the market move along, but it's also presumably pushing up prices. So you, you, lose, you lose somewhere along the way. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not a first. I'm not going to be a first home buyer anytime soon, so <laughs> I haven't paid yeah. too much attention. Yeah, and on that point, because earlier in the show, Karina made Karina. We were talking about energy at the time, but Karina made the point that uh, the big, the big uh, energy companies donate to the political parties, and it's part of the problem in getting them to do anything to, to actually thwart them. Mm -hmm. uh, similarly, uh, when the recent uh, report on donations to political parties came out, it turned out the real estate industry was up to its neck in it. Um, mm -hmm. The Real Estate Institute of Australia, Master Builders, the Housing Industry Association, they even paid the, the ALP money. They said, you know, despite the fact that it was, but of course because of the fact, in fact, they'd planned to curb negative gearing and capital gains tax breaks on property investment, but thousands of dollars were given um, 
to these, they gave more to the Liberal Party, but again, and yesterday, people like um, Meriton, which is the, the one of the richest men in the company, country, and another um, company called Sugarlina, uh, the Gandell Group, um, and Transurban even, but they come into, I don't know, they come into real estate other than taking things for roads. Ray White Corporation gave to the Liberals, LJ Hooker. So all these people who have an interest in keeping real estate prices up and being involved in uh, the private side of housing uh, obviously don't give money to political parties just because they're feeling altruistic. The, um, yeah, I mean, as, as well as that, you know, we know that massive proportions of politicians also own investment properties, so they have a, a personal interest as well as a as well as that kind of, you know, financing interest in, in maintaining high housing prices. And, like, that's just the perspective that they come at these problems in, isn't it? Mm. Howard, comment on that? Oh, yes. There's just so much you could say about that. But um, the other thing is the whole uh, large sections of the Australian population have now been converted into either people that own uh, rental properties and therefore want to see capital gains or higher rents or they're people who superannuation is largely dependent on assets like um, uh, like uh, rental properties as well. So your superannuation might be going up, like last year's super went up 8%, uh, fantastic, but it's doing it on the back partly of capital gains and, and rental, um, rental increases. Uh, so the, the politicians know that, you know, they... There's pressure on them to keep the um, the because superannuation is unearned income, right? You've got your component of your contribution from your wages, so you lose wages. So I'm not an, as you might be able to tell, I'm not an advocate for superannuation at all. But you lose part of your wages that gets invested uh, through the superannuation trust, and it gets invested in shares, generally shares or property. So you're a worker. You're getting increases through capitalists who are actually trying to keep your wages down or through property rises, and which means you're either paying higher rent or higher uh, purchase price. Um, so, unfortunately, the whole system has been... And that was a Labor Party initiative. Mm. Superannuation was, as I recall, it was Paul Keating. Paul Keating, yeah. yeah. And it actually, I don't know if you noticed, but Bill Landy was actually the uh, architect of of that, the right-wing um, mm. first became a union, who actually got in the yes. news in relation to Bob Hawke's daughter. Yes. Um, that's besides the point. But it was you know, pushed by the right-wing of the Labor Party and eventually adopted by a right-wing Labor Party Prime Minister. And now the whole union movement is sucked into it. Uh, and as a trade union delegate and council and myself, you know, it's, it's just really hard to say anything against superannuation mm. on those lines because it's so endemic. Well, CBUS, of course, the construction union, construction superannuation fund, it, it's now one of the biggest commercial property developers in the country. And recently it was also shown that despite what it says, it has massive amounts of money in the coal industry. Yes, in coal so industry. wrong on so yeah. many grounds. Um, we've, I, can, I can tell you that the um, union movement is now starting to look at a just transition, though. Um, so there's going to be actually, actually an organised... Uh, um, uh, group within the union movement to try and work out a plan and and then try and educate members about the need for that. So the union movement is starting to uh, rise to the occasion in that way and hopefully we'll be able to bring the CFMU on board with that. 
I spoke a while ago to a, a bloke I regard as a, being, having been a decent union official who's now, a, he's retired, but he's now you know, on, on one of the super boards, and asked him why they didn't invest more in things like housing, etc., for low-income people. And his, uh, his response was they'd like to and they talk about it, but they're stuck with fiduciary duties under the Act. Um, surely they can get around that, I would have thought. No, they can't, because they actually have to try to maximise their return. Yes, yes. That's, that's, that, that was his argument, yeah. Yeah, so it's not, it's not actually their fault. It's, it's their fault for supporting the whole model of superannuation in the first place, whereas what we should be going for, workers should keep all their wages instead of having to give up 10%, roughly, it's about to go up to 12%, and have a good pension scheme and or universal basic income to support people and a good you know, social services system like health, education and transport so mm. that you don't need, you know. So, look, people, people are, never have enough now. You, mm. you can never actually get enough money to make yourself feel secure. You know, probably if you're a billionaire, you probably feel somewhat secure. But the people below that are always wondering what's going to happen to their, you know, investment, their property. They're, they're wondering what's going to happen to inflation. Um, you don't know what's going to happen to your job. Everything's become unstable and unpredictable, which means that there's pressure on people to actually push for profit maximisation instead of trying to be fair to people. Mm. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, when you shift away from, from pensions and social welfare towards superannuation, it also tends to disproportionately disadvantage women whose uh, careers are more likely to be disrupted to, to take time out to raise families and things like that. Um, so we see a big superannuation gap between men and women workers retiring now, and that's something we see a lot at, at HAG where um, well over half of our clients are women, and that's that's largely because of the the, the gap in their savings when they when people retire. Yeah, and of course superannuation also then locks workers into the capitalist system very much, which is the biggest objection I would have thought that they they become very much a part of the system they should be opposing. That's right, yeah. you know, and then then you actually you face this uh, ideological thirsty that we need growth of the economy all the time, otherwise people will lose wages, lose their jobs, all this sort of stuff. Um, whereas if you have, as I said before, if you have good government uh, intervention, regulation, assistance, incomes, you, people don't have to worry. If, so if, if, so I'll give you an example. Um, uh, I get woken up 7 o'clock every morning by uh, construction just a couple of doors down. There's two different construction sites that wake me up every morning at 7 o'clock. Um, you know, one's a renovation, which has been going on for a year, and other one's a house demolition and, and rebuilding. Um, so that's actually something that doesn't show up in your GDP. So our economy has been, uh, been moved to, or is, dependent on um, creating unnecessary wants and needs. Um, and if you try and criticise it, like, I don't like the fact that I'm woken up every morning at 7 and the, the sound keeps going until 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, but if I try and object, I'm told, oh, well, you know, it creates jobs, creates growth. Uh, the whole point is you, don't, you shouldn't have an economy which is dependent on growth in order to provide work and in order to provide a decent standard of living to people. Uh, it's just this particular economy, which is partly a, a partly capitalist economy, but it's also a consumerist economy. Um, 
So they're a couple of concepts that people need to actually understand and, and try and work about a way to move away from. Otherwise, we're just going to be stuck with this whole... It leads to environmental problems as well because if you have continual increase in output, um, which is not necessary, it means you actually have more pollution and more resource restriction resource extraction than you need um, and uh, it's not a, it doesn't actually in the long term benefit people because most people are actually losing um, financially as well as uh, in um, security uh, in the long term hmm. there was a story a couple of weeks ago about the fact that the, the, the industry claims that things are looking better now because the vacancy rates have uh, edged slightly higher and uh, rents can go up, but they claim that it's the end of a period where where tenants uh, were, had the great benefit of lower rents, etc., which I'm sure a lot of tenants didn't didn't realise and didn't notice. Um, but it, it says in Melbourne, where the market is more balanced, asking rents rose by 1% over December and by 2.8% on the quarter, which they say is a bit encouraging because they're going up, but 2.8% on the quarter is, um, what's that, 11, 11 or something percent per annum. That's way above any bloody wage increase or, or inflation, surely. Oh, there's no doubt that rents are increasing faster than wages are. Yeah. I mean, are wages increasing? Yeah. No, well, it's, it's 11 point, well, actually, 11.2 percent, isn't it? That's another thing. I mean, the Reserve Bank has just taken interest rates down to three quarters of a percent um, in order to try and... Uh, increase people's spending, which they think, think will actually increase wages, but it's not happening. What's happening is people are actually <coughs> uh, standing back and waiting to see what's going to happen and paying down their, their mortgages. Um, and now they've actually started to uh, borrow more to buy more investment properties, which is again pushing up house prices. Mm. So it's, it's, the Reserve Bank is just a joke. I'm, you know, I have to say it. They keep coming out. You get these guys like Ian Lowe parade, being paraded out like they're some sort of great... Guru. Economic guru. Yeah. But also that they're actually thinking about workers. He keeps talking about, oh, maybe we could try and drive down unemployment below 5%, 4.5%. Well, that's still a lot of people unemployed. Um, but then you look at the... Uh, all he can do is actually pretty much change the interest rate. But that's not going to be the solution. You change the interest rate and you do nothing else, all it does is it drives up the prices through investors. What you've got to do is reduce your interest rates for the benefit of people who are paying off their home mortgages and stop your loans going to investors or reduce it drastically so it doesn't push up your house prices. Mm. But he won't talk about that. But an 11.2% annualised increase um, on already rents that many people can't afford is just extraordinary. Extraordinarily good for the investors. Well, that's, that, that's, that's, right. well, that's, that's it. You've answered the question. That's all that matters, isn't it, really? Um, Pretty much. That's it. You can, you can, you know, you can, you can sympathise all you like with people, but if your policies aren't going to achieve anything for the people you're supposedly sympathising with, you're left with capital growth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I've said this on this show before, but when the government was reviewing the Residential Tenancies Act a year or two ago, um, they were willing to, to countenance, in some cases, you know, did, did legislate for quite radical changes, but the one area that they were absolutely unwilling to touch or to even discuss was the prospect of rent control. 
there's absolute unwillingness to, to countenance that idea. Yeah, well, actually, I was going to raise that because in Berlin, where only 18% of residents own their own houses, the rest rent, and for a long time it's been used. I know we've interviewed Kate Shaw about it, about the system where it was rents were under control, etc. But they've been going through the roof because much of what was formerly public housing has been privatised, and as a result, of course, rents are, funny about rents are soaring through the roof. But the local government now... Um, rental prices on more than one and a half million Berlin apartments will be frozen or lowered for five years as a result of new legislation aimed at halting a recent spike in rents that is driving out older and lower income residents. Uh, the measure which legislators approved last week and which is to take effect next month is an attempt by Berlin's leftist government to slow the gentrification of a city that built a reputation on a creative scene but is being squeezed by real estate investors and infrastructure projects. And the the Real estate industry came out with the usual things about getting rid of jobs and negative effects, etc. Limiting and reducing the income from rents will create uncertainty for investors and the, you know, the usual lines we hear here as well. But the federal government is also stepping in there and saying that the local government has no right to legislate on, uh, on rent control, but they're making an attempt there to at least control rents. Yeah, yeah and that would be the right-wing federal government. Of course, yes, think, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. So which, which is neoliberal. It'd be interesting to see uh, what their, um, what's the other one over there, the Social Democrats, which is pretty much a Labor equivalent, would be um, saying about that. Um, so I don't know what they'd say about that, but, you know, all power, that's uh, it's really the, the only way you can do it. You can only do it by having legislation to control rents, um, as well as, you know, as I said before, you need to actually limit the amount of investment own properties altogether, yeah. which which was happening. This was happening a year and a half ago. The Australian Prudential Regulation Authority actually stepped in to limit the loans going to investors, and that was the cause, largely, of the drop in house prices. House prices went down ten percent in one year. You know that was very effective. That's what we want to see. Maybe it happened too fast, but eventually. But you've got to face the fact that you've got to have some sort of policy to limit investment because there's just too much money going into it and it's pushing up house prices. Yeah, well, despite the fact that um, the president of the German Real Estate Association said the red cap is equivalent to an expropriation and is a catastrophe for Berlin's real estate market, the woman who's leading this, um, the Senator for City Development, Katrin Lomscher, said we have created an instrument that will stop the partially observed price developments for the next five years. It is up to politicians to create the basic conditions for lower and middle class earners to be able to afford to live in Berlin. Um, so there's a campaign going on over there. Yeah. Yep. All right. We're running out of time, team. Um, but look, um, any final words? Well, can I just plug Hag's next general meeting is going to be oh. on the 5th of March. No, you can't. Okay. Yeah, well, it's too late now. <laughs> 11 a.m. on the 5th of March at Ross House at 247 to 251 Flinders Lane. Um, if you're interested in getting involved, um, we'd love for you to come along. Um, ideally, uh, give us a call on RSVP first, but you can just rock up if you want. Yeah, what's uh, the number to call? 9654-7389. Uh, so that's 11 a.m. on the 5th of March. Okay. Howard, final words? Uh, hopefully I'll see people at either the rally this afternoon or midday. Next, next Wednesday. And, um, and don't forget about the uh, 
housing uh, inquiry, the, the parliamentary inquiry in homelessness. Right, yeah, well, next month I'll make, remember to bring your number in as well. <laughs> uh, okay, but thanks for calling in, Howard, that was great. Yeah. All right, thanks to both of you. And um, next week, we, it's a fourth Wednesday, um, and we're going to be talking about the need for a corruption, in, um, a, a federal corruption body in Australia following recent events that have a uh, few events so most people know about. So we'll be talking about that next week as one of the items on our program next week. Okay, that's, thanks a lot. Thank Karina, by the way. You're the guest here today, in a way, Shane, although you do your own program here as well. <laughs> thank, thank Karina, will you, thanks, for doing Karina. a great job. <laughs> I like how you make everybody do that one. Okay, thanks, Howard. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.